You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Amazing. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. Where I've been going through 1 Peter... We've been going through it together uh, over the last number of weeks. And, and the reason is because in my own time with the Lord, the verses and the words in this book have just been jumping, leaping off the page into my heart, which is the way it should be. I'm not saying every time I open the word of God, it's like that, but we shouldn't settle for anything less because this book is living and active. And it's the, it actually describes itself as sharper than a two-edged sword. It's meant to cut into our hearts, helping us discern even between soul and spirit. So can we pray before we read God's word, before we open up God's word, just that supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit would quicken our hearts to receive from him. Could we do that? Lord, we want to receive from you. We don't want to receive from just a human voice, although that's oftentimes how you choose to reveal yourself in this hour, but we want to receive from the supernatural revelation of your word. So we're inviting you, Holy Spirit, to have your way. In fact, right now, we're submitting ourselves to you and your kindness. It's like that fatherly, wise counsel. We're submitting ourselves to you, asking that you'd sharpen us Wake us up, minister to us. I believe there's some here this morning who really need the tender ministry of Holy Spirit. And that can't happen just through my words. It has to come through the word of God, being made alive by the spirit of God. So speak to us this morning. We're hungry, we're hungry for your word, for the bread, for the fresh manna from heaven. In your mighty name, Jesus, amen. 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to share a message with you entitled Submission to Jesus. I want to share about something that is going to be hard for us to receive. But I want to, I want to share with us about what God's word is going to um, point us to, which is submission. Submission to Jesus, ultimately. And submission is, is not something we ever hear talked about in our culture so you won't hear this message elsewhere. This will only be found here hidden in the gospel. A call for us to submit ourselves ultimately to Jesus is the ultimate authority in our lives. To submit ourselves to King Jesus. There will be a ripple effect of a life of submission that ripples out from this ultimate submission to the king. You see, this moment we're about to step into in 1 Peter chapter 2 starting in verse 13 is a pivot point in this book. Up until this point, Peter has been emphatically establishing these believers who are scattered across the Roman Empire, establishing them in their identity in the Lord. If you remember, he, he in verse 3 of chapter 1, said that they've been born again into this living hope. These are ones who are being persecuted. These are ones who literally, from day to day or week to week, face death and persecution and he's saying, remember, you've been born again into a living hope, a hope that's actually imperishable, an inheritance that's imperishable. 
So he says, in light of that, your identity is now as obedient children. So live that way. Yes, as pilgrims, as sojourners, as exiles in this world, live ultimately as obedient children to the Lord before the Lord. And he goes on to describe them and establish them. And he describes them with this sort of language. He says, the Lord is building you up as a spiritual house to host the presence of God. That's the Lord's main purpose for you as a people, as a collective of people, as a community of people, to be a spiritual house. He's building you up. He's strengthening you up. He's ministering to you so that you can be a house that hosts the king well while you, while you live as pilgrims and sojourners in this world. And he also says you're like a priesthood. You're, you're a chosen nation. You're a chosen people. You shine brightly in this world. You're a priesthood that, that live in the presence of God and then also usher other people into the presence of God. So he goes on and on and on about, like, about this almost for two full chapters. And then he gets to verse 13. He pivots from identity towards application to our everyday lives. Because that's, that's necessary for this knowledge of God to be fleshed out in our daily lives. And the Lord is calling us to be everyday believers, believers in which the gospel means something for our lives Monday through Saturday, not just Sunday mornings where we sing about it and can, can say the right things, but Monday through Saturday, there is this demonstration of a life that's submitted. So submission, we will find here in the gospel, submission is strength. You're not gonna hear this in the world. You won't find that on Google. You won't find it on Instagram. Submission is strength. If you actually look up the word submission in the thesaurus, synonyms, you know, in opposition to the gospel, synonyms for submission in this world is capitulation, appeasement, passivity. But in reality, submission is strength in this world. Because submission is this testimony that your value and your identity is established elsewhere. There you have, you have not, nothing to prove. You have nothing to cling to. No position or title to cling to. You're already established firmly in Jesus Christ. You're a set apart people. You're a priesthood. He's put his, his hand upon you. Therefore, there's nothing to, to prove. In actuality, submission is this allegiance to the king. Jesus demonstrated submission. So ultimately, he's not just a good example. He is our standard. So just look at this. will actually be on the screen. I believe it's on the screen. Matthew chapter 26. Jesus, so just think of this scenario. And if it's not on the screen, oh, there it is. Great. Um, think of this scenario. This is the king of the universe. Literally, he created the cosmos the king of all kings, the one of whom someday every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And he's here being betrayed by the ones he's gonna give his life for. And they've come to capture him here in the garden. It says, verse 50, Jesus said to them, friend, do what you came to do. And they came up, they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So he 
Peter, as we find out from the other gospels, thinks like we all think. It's like, we, we got it. This is, this, uh, this is of imminence, imminent importance. We need to step in and defend our, our leader, our, our rabbi, our teacher. Find out in another gospel, Jesus picks up the ear off the ground and heals the man. Verse 52, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. Calm down. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? That is submission. This unshakable strength and confidence to stand before swords and opposition literally before his eyes and to know without a shadow of a doubt that he in a moment could, could call legions of angels to strike them all dead but to be fully submitted to the ways of the Father, the will of the Father. That is submission. And so we look to Jesus as our, not just our example, but as the standard for our lives. Regardless of what unjust situation we face, which we'll talk through some of the more extreme examples here in 1 Peter, we are called to live this life of submission, of ultimate yieldedness and surrender to the Lord, which gives us strength. We actually see submission. We will get to 1 Peter chapter 2, but we actually see submission in God himself, even before the creation of all things. We see submission in the Godhead, in the Trinity. We see the Father who, in a sense, is submitted to the agency of the work of the Holy Spirit to do the work across the earth, the work in creation and then the ministry of the kingdom of revealing the kingdom of God and his redemptive story. The Father submits to the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that submits to Jesus in the sense that his role is to reveal Jesus. He's deferring to Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit is to continually reveal Jesus to humanity. And it's Jesus who's submitted to the Father. So it's this constant de- deference, de- deference or deferring to another person within the God. Within God himself, there's this this strength of submission. So submission to the Lord and our allegiance to another kingdom is demonstrated by our ability to submit within our own spheres on this earth. And we'll see in application what that means. He's actually going to dive through or uh, dive into three specific examples, not as an exhaustive list, but as ones that cover a lot of bases for us in our everyday lives as followers of Jesus. He first is going to apply this this understanding of submission and strength and our firmly established identity in Christ being applied firstly to human institutions, you know, governmental institutions and those sorts of authorities that we all have to learn how to interact with. What does this new life in Christ now mean for that? Then he applies it to the role between employers and employees or his wordage is masters and servants. The old English translations is masters and slaves. But in really Roman culture, the better wordage is masters and servants. Because servants could actually own land. They were, they were way different than slavery as, as we know it. Servants had certain rights. Actually, servants had more rights than women had. And the, the third example is in the context of marriage. So let's dive into this. Verse 13, he says, Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, by, sent by the emperor 
to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So the Lord is not condoning these human institutions. The Lord actually specifically says they are human institutions. But we can submit our lives under these earthly institutions because our value and our identity and our position is established elsewhere, firmly established. So he's not condoning the human institutions. He's not condoning that we're... Actually, stop and think about how scandalous the message of the gospel is in light of the Roman Empire. The emperor of Rome, specifically in this context, they, they most believe it was Nero, propped themselves up as God. It was like the, the Egyptian pharaohs as of old. It's like, worship me as God. And they actually put religions into two different camps. There were the legal religions. Those were the ones that they felt like were no threat to the Roman Empire, no threat to public morality or you know, civic order. And there were the illegal religions. Those were the ones that were a threat to, to order and to, to public morality. Eventually, around the time of Nero, Christianity got put into the illegal camp of religions. But for the first number of 30, you know, three, uh, three decades of the establishment of Christianity, Christianity was lumped with Judaism, which was a legal religion. You know, Ju- uh, Christianity was just seen as a, another sect of Judaism, you know, rightfully, understandably so. They just thought it, saw it as like a schism within Judea- Judaism. And so in this context, this is, this is hard for us to swallow. Scripture is actually telling us, God himself is telling us to submit ourselves to human institutions, even ones that prop themselves up as God. Not to worship them, not to give ourselves to their ways or to give in to immorality, but to live in this firm groundedness and this confidence that our value and our position and ultimately authority is found elsewhere. That all of this is temporary. Therefore, we can submit ourselves and trust the Lord even in the midst of unjust things happening before us. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This becomes our testimony. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, like the family of God. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You know, some scholars have even struggled to swallow the reality of Peter writing this because of the brutality of Emperor Nero. You know, and Nero was brutal in his, his uh, murdering of Christians. He would wrap them in hay and light them on fire for all to see. He would wrap uh, animal skins around them and set his dogs free on them to tear them limb, limb from limb. Like that was the brutality of Nero. He hated them and he used Christians as a scapegoat for his building. Uh, he ended up burning down Rome and he blamed it on the Christians so that he could rebuild Rome in his, in his uh, preferences, you know, and put his stamp on it. That was the brutality of Emperor Nero. And yet Peter, having 
this revelation from the Holy Spirit, knew the gospel calls us into a life that's otherworldly, a life of being willing and able. The proper word is probably able, able to submit ourselves to anything unjust in this world because we are submitted and grounded elsewhere before the king of all kings. And so verse 16 is the the core of it. Live as people who are free. That's that's the truth over your life. You are free, regardless of what human institutions come and go. And we know how history went. The Roman Empire fell. And all these human institutions that we get so drawn into in the world of politics and and government and even what's happening right now in Ukraine and Russia, we get We get drawn into it in any generation, but they come and they go. Our allegiance, our groundedness, our value, our position is found elsewhere. It's found in the king. So we can live as people who are free. We are a people who've been born again into a living hope. No situation, no human institution can take your freedom from you. Your sense of dignity actually reminds me of a story by the great abolitionist Frederick Douglass. There's a story of him riding in a, um, a passenger carriage from one destination to another, and, and a white person came into the carriage and kicked him out of the, the passenger carriage and put him in, or told him to get in the, the baggage carriage. Get back with the baggage. And somebody saw, saw this happen this, uh, this injustice happened, ran up to Frederick Douglass and apologized to him for this, this person being, able, being um, able to degrade Frederick Douglass in this way. And this is what Frederick Douglass said. He said, they cannot degrade Frederick Douglass. That which is within me, no man can degrade. I'm not the one that is being degraded on account of this treatment, but those who are inflicting it upon me. That is the truth of the gospel. And Frederick Douglass had a firm faith in the Lord as he often preached the gospel. That is the, now the, the script for a child of God. No one can degrade you. No one can diminish your value because that's firmly fixed in the cross. We live as people who are free. We don't use that freedom as a cover-up for evil. We actually can live this grounded, peaceful, restful life, even in light of chaos around us, or lawlessness around us. We can be grounded. We can honor everyone. We can fear the Lord. And that's going to be a phrase he uses throughout this. So we willingly submit to human institutions because we're ones who are submitted to God. We have a firmly fixed dignity in him that we can submit ourselves to temporary institutions. Jesus reiterated this, or he spoke this prior to Peter penning this when he said, give to Caesar what is his and give to Lord what is his. And scripture is chock full of these examples of these ones who are grounded elsewhere, but lived lives of honor and submission in the midst of all sorts of human institutions. We see Joseph, and Joseph went on, you know, who experienced all sorts of atrocities and injustices in his life, rather than it allowing him to fall into this bitter, cynical, orphan spirit, he has this testimony for us. In fact, he named his son Manasseh, which means, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. 
There is this gospel superpower that can turn on head any atrocity, any injustice done against us as a testimony to the world. And we see that throughout scripture. We see that for Daniel. We see that for Esther. We see that for Peter, for Paul, and on and on and on. We see that gospel superpower played out. Let's continue reading as he moves now to the next application. Masters and servants are for us, for employers and employees. So get ready, it's gonna get real now because you know, we live in a, we are very blessed with the human institution. We get to submit ourselves in a constitutional republic. republic. Um, but it may not be the case for you in your employment situation. So here's some strength for you in regards to your life Monday through Saturday. Verse 18, servants or employees, submit yourself or be subject to your masters with all respect. And so our flesh would stop right there. Okay, I can do that if my employer is a good employer. But he, he makes it much tougher for us. Not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. So, so wait a second. What The gospel calls me to willingly, lovingly submit myself to an unjust employer. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin you're beaten for it, you endure, but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. There's this phrase that Peter continues to insert throughout these exhortations, which all refer to a constant mindfulness or attentiveness to the presence of God. He says, in the sight of God. Prior to that, he said, be mindful of God. Prior to that, he said, fear God. Your life now as a child of God is to live with a constant sense of the nearness of the Lord, of his presence, of his reality. So in your workplace, Live and work in such a way in the sight of God, being mindful of the Lord. Jesus is our example. We don't get to see Jesus in his employment, you know, as a carpenter or whatever other odd jobs he worked throughout his life. But ultimately, Jesus is the example and the standard we look to in Hebrews chapter six. This isn't on the screen, but it says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So Jesus understood submission and strengthened submission as he was constantly submitted to the Father. Even in the midst of of ravaging um, injustices done against him and sorrow, being thrust upon him. He looked to the Father, submitted himself to the Father. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So we see in Jesus the standard. I would say the the inner sinful child within us constantly says this, and I've worked enough jobs to have thought this myself, we say, this isn't fair, All right? We say, but this, this is just wrong and, and we wanna turn the tables in our workplace. Don't do that, don't turn the tables. 
in your workplace. Rather, willingly submit your heart. It's not that you can never stand up for yourself with a spirit of respect and a spirit of dignity. You can. You definitely can. In fact, in Acts 22, Paul invokes his own rights as a Roman citizen in the midst of his own flogging. He says, hey guys, this isn't right. I'm a Roman citizen. I have certain rights as a Roman citizen. So there's a way to respectfully invoke certain rights that you have, and I completely advocate for that. I think that can be right. But what if those rights are completely obliterated even in the, in the fact that you have them established in some human institution or some law or whatnot, and you still experience injustice. The problem is if you put all of your hopes in some, inhuman, in, uh, some human institution or, or law, you've, you've taken your allegiance to King Jesus and you've placed it in some earthly temporary thing where the gospel has called for your heart and for your heart fully to be given to King Jesus. He can be trusted regardless of what happens in your workplace, what, what injustice happens to you, what wrong is done to you, what sorrow comes upon your life. And so resist that inner child in you that says this isn't fair. That's right. Ever since the curse, nothing has been fair in this world. But there is hope in Jesus Christ and we give him our heart continually. We say, I trust you, King Jesus. And there's a, there's a secret here that Peter's gonna get into, that is, that is the, the power of, of all this, of really what the Lord wants to accomplish in your life. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps so yes, we surrender our life to Jesus. The gospel is preached to us, the good news. That there's an answer for our sinful rebellion. There's an answer in the person of Jesus. He alone is sufficient. We surrender our lives to him. That preaching of the gospel is never meant to stop. From that day, we are born again into that living hope. That is meant to be our, our, our daily diet, the bread that feeds our soul. And so what we'll find is we will be gifted opportunities in our life, Monday through Saturday, for people to revile us, throw sarcastic stones at us, to throw cutting words at our heart, to actually physically come against us. And we'll be given opportunities to understand the very heart of Jesus in the midst of those things. And what it becomes is, a, is a, an opportunity to preach the gospel both to ourselves and to the world around us, pointing them to another world a kingdom and a king from that kingdom, King Jesus. Verse 22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Continue. That was the, the, the continual pattern of Jesus' life. I trust the Father. I'm submitting myself to the Father. Not my will, but your will be done, Lord. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you're straying like sheep, but now 
have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. So there is an intimacy and depth of relationship with the Lord that is available to each and every one of us. When circumstances and trials and tribulations come our way and we have a decision, will we step into a, a living reality of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, or will we not? Will we fall into the, the selfish orphan spirit of our childish nature? You know, where will we go? What will we choose this day? Where will our allegiance be? Who will have our heart? Will we allow our heart to get wrapped into human drama? Or will we continue to put our heart on the altar before the Lord? And what happens when we do that, and this is Peter speaking, who ultimately gave gave his life in martyrdom, but we even read in the book of Acts, he was persecuted. So for him, he, he was not speaking in theory. In the West, we mostly speak in theory when it comes to any sort of real persecution, myself included. But what Peter began to launch into as he's exhorting servants to be submitted to their masters is he launches into the gospel because that's what came out of him as he leaned into the spirit and the grace of God in the midst of persecution, in the midst of unjust persecution and his unjust suffering in his own life. You see, all of a sudden sense this um, intimacy and nearness to the presence of God, to the heart of Jesus. The Lord is not calling us anywhere that he himself has not first gone. And he went here. He went into the, into the pit of unjust suffering and gave us both an example and a standard for us to follow. So this is your calling. You want to know what the call of God upon your life is? It's this, to follow in his steps as we face injustice in this world. So next, he, he gets into marriage. So, so far, he's addressed human institutions. He's going to get into the God-ordained institution of marriage. So he's not, he, the Lord is not ordaining or um, condoning human institutions, as I said, in terms of governmental institutions, or there's never been a world system that, that perfectly encapsulates the, the gospel. That, that's what we're awaiting in the kingdom, the arrival of Jesus. And so it is in the workplace. And so he's not condoning slavery here, as has been argued by some in the past. Actually, the opposite is true. The very seeds of liberation and the ultimate abolition of of slaves is found here in the gospel because he's empowering these people to live free, to live with a sense that they can live with their chin up and dignity because it's uh, it's been endued upon them by by, by their ultimate master, by King Jesus. So the opposite is actually true. Very seeds of liberation and human flourishing are found in the gospel. But here in this third example, he brings us to an actual God-ordained institution, which is marriage. And he says this, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands or be submitted to your own husbands. So again, take away our thought of submission in this world. In the world, we think submission is weakness. In the kingdom, submission is strength. Subject yourselves to your husband. Be submitted with this firm grounding in your dignity and your value. In another world, submit yourself to your husband. So you're like, okay, that's great. When your husband is just amazing. When your husband's Pastor Tony or something, you're just like, oh, this is easy. 
But that's not where he goes. You can kind of get the pattern here. That's not where he's going. Peter's not going with the easy, low-lying fruit here as examples or exhortation. For ex- exhortation. Instead, he says, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So even those, those ones who are outside of Christ, those ones who honestly aren't great husbands, even if they don't obey the word, even if they themselves don't have the same value grid, even if they themselves have not submitted themselves to the king, still submit yourself to them. And you can do that. Peter does it with conviction. He calls them to that. Because he knows they, they have a value that's firmly planted elsewhere. How do they do that? They, they allow their lives to be a living testimony of the dignity and the honor and the value that they have planted elsewhere in another kingdom. And they live their lives with bright-eyed and their heads held high. This is, this is counter-culture. Like I said, women had less rights than, than even the servants did in the Roman Empire. And so oftentimes, the reason he addresses here in verse three, you know, external adornment and whatnot, like their dress, is because many times in Roman culture, women would just self-obsess, because they had no really purpose in their life outside of the home, they would, they would infatuate themselves with all sorts of adornments and the way they looked. And that was like their purpose in life, was to just be as pretty and as beautiful. I mean, it kind of sounds like some of the values in the Western world. He says, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight, there it is again, in God's sight, so before the presence of God is very precious. That imperishable seed placed there by your faith in Jesus Christ that can't be made any better by how we dress or what fancy stuff we purchase. It's made precious because of the precious priceless blood of Jesus Christ. And it's there and we cultivate this spirit of gratitude and value for the work of Christ in our inner spirit. I'm speaking to the women here. Verse five, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. As you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. Now, I'm not encouraging you to call your husband Lord. But there was this example that Peter pulls from, from the Old Testament, of the willingness of Sarah to submit herself to Abraham, even in his failings, even in his flaws, to still have a heart, ultimately, that's submitted to the Lord. And in this human institution of marriage, the Lord has called, specifically wives, to express that submission ultimately to the Lord in the vein, with their, in this relationship with their husbands. This is a difficult calling, and I'm not minimizing that in the least. This can be difficult as the realities of married life flush themselves out before us. I say this with tenderness, I say this with grace. Marriage is tough. Learning to covenant together with a person 
over a lifetime is no easy task. But yet what the gospel calls us to is just that, is a faithfulness, regardless of what comes our way, regardless of what that person does to us or what they say to us or what wrongs they've done to us, to remain faithful. I'm reminded of a dear friend of me and my wife, that we, a friend that we made while we were out in the Seattle area right after college. Her name was Emmy, and um, Emmy was this fiery Filipino lady who taught us all about Filipino culture and pho and all the delicious things that come from Filipino cuisine. But Emmy was just a fireball for Jesus. She loved the Lord. As we had to host prayer gatherings, Emmy would be there first, ready to seek the Lord. And she so inspired us. And after some of the gatherings that we, we hosted, we got the privilege of going out to eat with, with Emmy and beginning to spend more time with her. We began to hear her testimony. Emmy had such a faithfulness to, the, faithfulness to the Lord and a submission ultimately to her husband and ultimately to her, her greater husband, King Jesus, because her husband for many years was a very difficult man to live with. You see, Emmy came to know the Lord later in life. In her 30s, she encountered the goodness of God. She surrendered her life to Jesus and it flipped everything on head. Her husband would have nothing of it. He was a very angry man. He was you know, ex-Navy and um, was verbally abusive, was very difficult to live with. And she faithfully honored the Lord and prayed for, for, for her husband, Pete. Prayed for him faithfully, year after year after year. Her eyes not fixed on Pete, because oftentimes if she did that, she would, she would um, nosedive into discouragement. Instead, her eyes were fixed on her ultimate husband and maker, King Jesus. He had her heart. Her heart had been given to a king, King Jesus. And so she could, even in the midst of injustice, even in the midst of unjust suffering, continue to submit herself in that place, in that place of prayer, contending for Pete's salvation. Years went by and they entered in their 50s. Pete ended up surrendering his life to Christ. His heart was melted in the presence of God and he ended up encountering Jesus for himself. I knew that was the Lord's will and that's what Peter talks about here is ultimately that testimony of the inner beauty, preciousness of the gospel being hidden in a wife's heart, being made manifest to an unbelieving husband. Now, I'm not advocating for a person to stay in a physically abusive relationship. There's ways to still honor and be submitted without putting yourself physically in danger. That's not what I'm advocating for. At the end of the day, I'm asking for our hearts to be fully submitted to the Lord. And that can be made manifest even in the worst of human conditions. Then he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. That is so scandalously counterculture to the Roman in ways of antiquity that women would be considered co-heirs with the men. 
in this new kingdom. They are heirs with you of the grace of life. So treat them with honor, treat them with understanding, treat them with dignity. Serve them, as Paul tells us, serve them as Jesus serves the church. And then he says a really peculiar phrase, but really it shouldn't be so peculiar to us. He says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Oh, we love to live in this oblivion or this deception that we can live our lives a certain way. Monday through Saturday, and our spiritual lives are unaffected, are, uh, you know, remain unaffected. But throughout this, he's been advocating and exhorting us to live in a way of constant awareness of the presence of God and attention to the presence of God. So if we're living in conflict with our wife, I can guarantee you, your prayers will be hindered. It's been said that the sighs of an injured wife come between the husband's prayers and God's hearing. And too many, too many men fall into the deception of, of something otherwise. That we can live our lives however we want with dysfunction and conflict in the home, cutting words, betrayal and all the rest, unfaithfulness, and somehow we can still be in right standing with the Lord. It doesn't work that way. Our relationship with God can never be right if our relationships with our fellow men are wrong. The Lord has called us to live in right relationship with the people that are closest to us. So we're talking about like the, the, the relationships that we spend most of our time with. The gospel should be made most manifest to those in closest proximity to our life. And Jesus calls us to that, you know, the, the kind of level of importance in Matthew chapter five, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. It's like your, your gift or your prayers or your worship are tarnished by your sinfulness in the home and your sinfulness in relationship with other people. We can't have it just one way. We can't live and pretend like we're in right standing with, the God, with God when we're not in right standing with those closest to us. The Lord is calling us as men to honor our wives, to serve them, to live with a spirit of understanding towards them, to live in patience towards them, to look at them in the eyes, understanding that they are heirs with us in this, the, the grace of life. I'm gonna ask Scott to come forward and just play the keys lightly. The kingdom principle calls us to have kingdom eyes so we see like the king sees. And so husbands, do you, do you look at your wives? Do you, sorry, you should only have one wife. Do you look at your wife <laughs> with eyes like, like King Jesus looks at her? Do you see in her and call out of her the precious, beautiful adornment brought about by the work of the gospel, by the work of Jesus Christ in her life? Do you call that out of her? Do you honor that? Speak that over her with boldness. This is the call of God upon our lives. 
This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.